Okay, today we're, we're picking up in Exodus 13 in verse 17. This is where you have the pillar of cloud and fire introduced. And going all the way through chapter 14, we have the event of the Red Sea. And the main thing that I think that we learn about God and his salvation in this passage is that God is our guide. You know, synonyms for that is, you know, he's, he's the one who leads us. Uh, the ways that he does that is he protects us and he provides for us just as he did to the sons of Israel so long ago in the event of the Exodus. So I'm going to read this whole text starting in chapter 13, verse 17 through chapter 14. And then we'll discuss what it teaches. But what I want you to see is God guiding his people by caring for them. And the way that he cared for them is that he was their shield. He was a deliverer to them, but a destroyer to their enemies. And this was a work that he did all by himself. It wasn't because these people deserved it or even because they wanted him to do it. It was because he decided to do it and he had promised long ago through particularly the Abrahamic covenant that he would do this very thing. So let's begin in reading Exodus 13 and pick up in verse 17. Now it happened that when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see the war and return to Egypt. Hence, God turned the people to the way of the wilderness, to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in battle array from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and shall bring you up and, and shall bring up my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness and Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might go by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel so that they may turn back and camp before Pir Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite by the sea. And Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, They are wandering in confusion in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he will pursue them. And I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. 
Then the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 choice chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, with strength. And he pursued the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out with an exalted hand. Then the Egyptians pursued them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them by camping by the sea, by Pirhaharoth in front of Baal Zephon. Now Pharaoh drew near, and the sons of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very afraid. So the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. Then they said to Moses, It is because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Or is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What is this you have done against us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Yahweh will fight for you and you will keep silent. Then Yahweh said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Speak to the sons of Israel so that they go forward. As for you, raise up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and split it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians with strength so that they will go in after them. And I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am glorified through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea into dry ground so the waters were split. So the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. 
Then at the morning watch, Yahweh looked down on the camp of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the camp of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Then Israel saw the great hand of Yahweh, the great hand which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians. And the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh, and in his servant Moses. Our great God and guide, we come to you in prayer because you have opened to us access to you in choosing to be our guide and to save us and to make us your people that you would protect, your people that you would provide for, your people that you would lead and instruct and guide in your way. I pray that you would teach us of who you are and that you are the one who fights for us and you do that to make yourself known not only to us but to make yourself known to the nations. So we pray that you would teach us of yourself and your salvation from this text. Amen. And beginning here, you see that in God's guidance, that he, he didn't guide them in a particular way. He didn't guide Israel through the land of the Philistines. I said, well, why did he do that? Well, he knew what was in their heart. You know, he knew that this was a fearful people that didn't trust him. He knew that if they saw a war going on there, that uh, in, their, in their hearts, they would, you know, at that point say, all right, let's go back to Egypt. <laughs> uh, Israel at this point, they did not believe. They, they did not trust Yahweh. They were a fearful and fickle people. And the way that God decided to take them, it wasn't the most obvious way to go. Uh, it wasn't the shortest way. It wasn't the most direct way, but it was going to be the best way because this was God's way because he wanted to display something about his wisdom amidst you know, the wisdom of the world, which he was going to make foolish in this case, which was going to be you know his military strategy versus Pharaoh's military strategy. And... Israel, when they go out, it says they, they go out in you know, a battle array. You know, they, they look like they're ready for battle, but they're actually not going to do anything except look like a battle array. 
it would be Yahweh who would fight for them. You know, they, they would not be defending themselves or protecting themselves. Rather, it would be this pillar of cloud and fire, which is also called the angel of God. You see, those two are uh, equated in the text. You see, Yahweh went out before them. The, the pillar of cloud went out before them. It's like, well, who is the cloud? Uh, it's Yahweh. And you're starting to see that it, Yahweh is one in his being, but the way that we try to explain this in the, the church historically is to say there's more than one person to that being. And you're seeing, uh, in a sense, there's you know, this person, Yahweh, who's in heaven, and he's going to look through Yahweh, the pillar on earth. It's like, yeah, they're both Yahweh. They're both one and the same purpose and will and everything that's happening, but how does this work? <laughs> you know? So you're seeing that he's different than we are. He, there's nobody like him. Like for us, we're one being and one person. For God, he's one being. And as you learn later when Jesus tells us the name that we're to give, when we're commissioned to tell that name, we learn that that one being is three persons. The name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we see there's this movement of Yahweh revealing himself in the burning bush, the angel of the Lord, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. You know, through these things, he's teaching who he is and he's showing his people as the one who guides them that he's present. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Uh, you can see that I'm with you right now and everything that's happening. You can see that I'm the one who's protecting you right now. I'm the one who's providing for you right now. And there isn't another. Charles is a good word, manifest. Yeah. Describing. Yeah, manifest or you know, reveal. And as Yahweh speaks to Moses, you see, he, what, what he's telling him basically says, okay, I've got this military strategy and what I'm going to do is I'm going to bait Pharaoh because he says, you guys are going to look like you're confused. But the irony of the thing is that they're going to come out here and be confused. <laughs> and he says, you know, again, he's going to harden his heart with strength because uh, Yahweh has a purpose. He wants to reveal something about himself and for that to work, he has to sovereignly harden Pharaoh's heart through uh, the whole thing. Uh, otherwise, he won't be able to, to carry out and fully reveal everything that he's wanting to, to teach to Israel, to teach to Egypt, and to teach to the ends of the earth. And he says, when all of this stuff happens, I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army. So he said, you know, how does God get glory? Well, he's going to get glory through judgment of his people's enemies. But he says, when that happens, there's a, a result that he's wanting to bring about. And it, that result is so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. This perhaps reminded Moses of the Abrahamic covenant, which he had already written about 
and remembering those words that Yahweh promised, I will curse those who curse you. He's saying, I'm being faithful to that. Uh, you're going to watch me do that. And so God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would pursue these people, that God would get glory by destroying them, and so that the Egyptians would know that uh, he alone is Yahweh. This strategy looked like weakness. It looked like it was going to be you know, the moment of defeat. It didn't look like it was going to be the moment of strength and salvation displayed. Here it's this pattern of the exodus that's being laid out is the pattern of the cross exodus in the future when Jesus appears in weakness and his enemy sees him and says, this looks like the best time to come upon him while he's sweating blood in the garden, while I have men staged and ready to take him captive, to beat him, to imprison him and crucify him. To the enemy, this looks like an easy victory, but what looks like wisdom to the world and the prince of the power of the air is actually going to be turned into foolishness because what the enemy's dealing with is the curse reverser. He's dealing with the one who, by the weakness of the cross, would display the strength of his salvation. Just as the Bible says in Colossians 2.15 that uh, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle, spectacle, public spectacle, there we go, of them triumphing over them by the cross, by the thing that looked like foolishness. And as all of this was happening in the setting of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, you know, in verse 5 they say, what is this we have done <laughs> that we have let Israel go from serving us? Now, you got to remember the context here. I mean, they've just gone through the, the ten plagues. They just said, okay, all of our, all of our gods are dead. Uh, Yahweh controls the water, the land, and the sky. All of our firstborn sons are dead. Uh, he has killed our dynasty. Let's go back to war with them. <laughs> it's like, you know, this just, this is a bad idea. But you're also seeing, you're seeing something of the depravity of, of man, the insanity of Satan and the demons and all who belong to him. But you're also seeing what this is a war over. Uh, it's a war over who owns those slaves. Who's the owner and who does their slavery belong to? Do we really have a sense of how much time passed through? For the 10 plagues taking place, and, you know, it seems like they're pretty decimated by all of those things. And then they're going to raise an army and... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's over a course of just a few days. Really? Yeah. It's like day after day. Just about, yeah. Okay. I, they're pretty well, like, back to, it's like right after one happens and Moses and Aaron come back 
And I talked to Pharaoh, I was like, well, here's the one that's happening tomorrow. And then it's like, after that. I'm just imagining what the streets would look like with all these dead animals. And <laughs> it's just... Yeah, you don't, have, you don't have any food in your house. Uh, you don't have any livestock. Uh, this is a good idea. That's cool. Well, yeah, it, it, strike, it strikes you just when you look at the narrative um, as... It's difficult to believe because if these things are happening in rapid succession, you would, th you would think that it would dawn on Pharaoh and the people, we need to try a different strategy. But I think the key here is that phrase, God is hardening their heart. God is yeah. orchestrating <laughs> these events in such a way to darken their eyes and their understanding yeah. so that he will reveal himself. Yeah, exactly. Which is pro that's probably not the uh, like the answer we would intuit right, necessarily, exactly, yeah. but it's the answer that, that Scripture gives us. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, why would anybody do that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like, well, because Yahweh had chosen to harden their hearts so that He could glorify Himself by displaying His wrath and judgment on them. And we often don't think of salvation and gospel preaching stuff like that you know usually think well the gospel is so that people will be saved it says well it's also so that people will be judged for rejecting it and they won't have any excuse well what is what is left in egypt well they have chariots and this was uh you know the the height of war technology during the time. I was like, well, you know, why did they have to bring out you know, the best of the best? Well, to, to show that Yahweh is going to defeat the absolute best that they have in its entirety. Now, as all of this is happening, you gotta think, uh, you know, from the standpoint, now you're, you're one of the sons of Israel and you've just been caught and overtaken by the Egyptians. What you're used to is these people beat you when you don't make bricks. Uh, you're not used to fighting back. You're just like, oh man, this is bad. <laughs> you know, this was really intimidating on their end. And so it says, you know, they became afraid. And here you see this satanic battle continuing, this temptation in their minds to fear the Egyptians. And to be distracted from looking at the glory of God that has just taken place in the plagues, the, the glory of God and his grace, and that he actually has taken them out of Egypt. The, the, the enemy is saying, don't look at that stuff. Look at the scary guys. <laughs> but there's this subtle reversal that's beginning to take shape because what happens here is the sons of Israel don't just cry out. They don't cry out to Pharaoh, but verse, verse 10 says, the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. So, things are starting to change here a little bit, but they haven't changed drastically or totally yet. You know, in, in verse 11, they're already saying, you know, are we here because there's no, no graves in Egypt? Well, you see here, Israel didn't believe. They, they didn't trust God but 
Yahweh, in a little bit, will show them a grave. It's just not going to be theirs. But you see the depravity of man, not only in the Egyptians, in how sin makes you stupid, cross-reference Proverbs 12, 1, verse 1, I think is right. But you see the depravity of man in the Israelites. You know, it wasn't you know, bad guys and good guys. It was just bad guys judged and bad guys delivered. But the sons of Israel in their natural state would rather pledge allegiance to a kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of God. They couldn't see the wisdom of that. They didn't have a believing heart. They would need a, a further exodus of the heart for that to happen. What happened here was they were so focused on the present circumstances that they had forgotten what Yahweh had did in the past. I mean, nobody's saying, come on, guys, don't be silly. Remember what just happened? <laughs> There's like, it's, it seems really scary right now. I don't remember what happened. Uh, but they're also not thinking of the future promises. That, uh, Yahweh had told them that he would deliver them. You know, in contrast to this, I think of Daniel and his three friends when you know, they, they faced the results of actually having faith in the Lord and being thrown in the furnace but what you see in them is that whatever the Lord calls his people to face as a result of fearing him is, is in fact better than simply remaining alive. So they're thinking of it in terms of, you know, how do we stay alive longer rather than, you know, how do we glorify the God who gave us our life with our lives? And we can trust him in death as much as we can trust him in life. Because Yahweh is our guide. And so we look to his wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, which is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1. And he also talks about how we're to look at the example of Israel in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived so the when we look when we would look at these israelites we would be looking in the mirror at ourselves to say well how do i do that you know, how do i become fearful of present circumstances and forget about god's past faithfulness and his promised future faithfulness this command to not fear is one of the most often repeated commands in scripture. One of the previous times that it comes up is in Genesis 15, one, when God comes to ratify the Abrahamic covenant with Abram, he says, do not fear Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So even that, you know, those words do not fear was a reminder that God is our shield. That, that's why I don't fear. He's my protector. He promised to, to Abraham to be that, and he continued to be that even with Isaac in the future. When he said to Isaac, do not fear for I am 
with you. So he says, I'm not only your shield that protects you, but I'm with you. I'm your present provider. I will bless you and multiply your seed. That, that can't change. And he says, I'm going to do all of that for the sake of my servant Abraham, which is a way of saying, because of the covenant that I made with him. Therefore, you can't die in the wilderness. It can't happen that way. Uh, I have to bless you, like I said. I have to multiply your seed, like I said. And when Moses is saying these words, do not fear, he's not trying to, to comfort them. You see, he, he's rebuking them because they're being foolish. Uh, there's no rational reason to, to doubt their Lord. Uh, there's every reason to say he's always been faithful. And he's the creator and controller of everything. And if he says he's going to redeem a people, he's going to do it. And we have no reason to doubt him. They could look back to the signs and miracles that testify to God's strength through the staff, that he was their healer and that he would take that which was leprous and restore it. What Moses says in his rebuke after do not fear is to stand by and see. This is their military strategy. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish. He's going to do it for you today. This is going to be personal. The salvation is going to be of Yahweh alone. And we see that's what our salvation is like. When you think about Christianity, it's Christianity is about something that we can do to become better people or something that we can do to change a difficult political situation. But it's about what Christ has done through the cross and the empty tomb to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile everything to himself ultimately when he will defeat all of our enemies. When it comes to this idea of standing still, this probably isn't our initial inclination when things are difficult in the world and you see uh, an unjust ruler going after you and he's a threat to you. You're probably not thinking, I think the best thing to do is stand still. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon says of this concept, quote, I dare say you will think it is a very easy thing to stand still, but is, it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, stand fast, and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. End quote. I think of that in a, a similar event of the year that shall not be named. It has two twos and two zeros in it. <laughs> and 
Yeah, you you would hear the politically minded people saying the Egyptians are coming, <laughs> or they call them communist instead. But you know, you get the same. I am speaking figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, what do we do? And nobody was saying stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh, but they're saying we have to do something. And then the people are like, okay. We want to do something. What do we do, person? And they would say, something. <laughs> like, okay, like I'm really emotionally worked up. <laughs> but where do we go from here? You know, we're just confused. But, you know, where were the people that were thinking, we just need to stand still and, and see the salvation of Yahweh. Uh, he will accomplish this. Or even just keep doing what you've been doing. Yeah. Is standing still in a sense. And in the ESVM 14, it says, be silent. There's another challenge when you're being <laughs> challenged. <laughs> yes. Stay silent. I don't know what says for you at the end of verse 14. Yeah, I'm about to talk about that. Okay, sorry. But, no, that's that's good. It provides a really good transit, and it shows that we're on the, the same you know, line of thinking together. <laughs> so he says here, you know, Yahweh will fight for you. And one of the things that we don't, we don't want to miss is that's what Israel means. That's what their name means. And what he's saying to them, he says, I'm going to do for you what your name means. Like, it's going to happen. I'm just... <laughs> thinking that your Israel should have been a reminder of this. <laughs> it's like, well, who are you? Uh, yeah, I'm an Israelite. I'm a, I'm a Yahweh fights for me-ite. Yeah. <laughs> you see the irony in it. Of course. And he says, and so what kind of counsel do you give somebody like that? You keep silent. <laughs> if you open your mouth, it will be bad. <laughs> You just need to listen and watch. It'll make sense later. <laughs> he said, yeah, this was a call to be silent and to be absent of these fearful words, of grumbling words, of disputing, of doubting. But rather, just be silent and of awe of the glory of seeing the one who is fighting for us. And just watch it happen. And I think we watched that happen. You know, even over the past two years, you know, we saw uh, God's people still gathered, but it was kind of like a baiting of the Pharaoh who would come out and say, you guys have to stop that. But what did it turn into? It turned into victory for God's people. It was a small reminder of God's pattern of Exodus work in the world. There are situations sometimes when as disciples we're astonished at the impossibility of the situation and we'd say, well, who, who then can be saved? <laughs> well, just as Jesus said to his disciples, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Throughout this text, you probably noted all sorts of creation language, the dividing of waters, the separation of there's some land that's underwater and then there's also dry land. 
you know, what, it's like, what's the point of all of this? What's the point that Yahweh's been making the whole time? So, you know, Pharaoh's not the creator and controller of all things. Uh, he's not the self-existent one who sustains everything. He says, I am that. Actually, that's my name. My name is Yahweh, the self-existent one, the sustainer of all things. And this is, I guess you could say hinting. I think I'm kind of underdoing it and using the word hinting. <laughs> but he's you know, hinting at the fact, you know, I, I, I'm the God of creation. And what I'm doing here, this is a new creation. This is a new beginning that's happening here. And you'll remember from the creation days how I drew this little chart out where you lay them out in parallels or uh, day one connects over to day three and uh, two to four and three to six. Did I get those right? And then, yeah, the eternal seventh day being the goal of all of that. But what you see in those two sets, it's like one, first God forms everything, and then in the next set, he fills. So he's, he's, I'm, I'm the God who forms and fills. That's what he's doing with Israel. Because right now they're not a nation yet. They're just the sons of Israel. He says, I'm forming a nation. But he says, after I form them, I will fill them. You know, the, the anticipation is building for that and reminding the reader that this is the God of the new creation, the God who forms something and then he fills it. And you know, what is the effect of you know, God choosing to glorify himself and displaying this and the defeat of Pharaoh and his army and his chariots and his horsemen. Well, the, the effect is every knee will bow. He says, when all of this happens, then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am glorified through Pharaoh. For, through Pharaoh. <laughs> Sometimes in the old the spiritual songs I like to listen to, they call them Pharaoh. So I almost said that. Glorified through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And when they, when they know this, when it happens, what do they do? They confess that Yahweh is Lord. But when do they do that? They do that after judgment. It's after judgment that the Genesis 3.15 experience happens. But when it happens, there's one family whose head is crushed and another who is rescued in the crushing process. Now the, there's some more creation language that you see here with the angel of the Lord, which is the pillar of cloud that goes before Israel and then it comes back behind them. <laughs> this is... Uh, this is maybe not the best analogy, but you know, it's like the little cubs out and the hunter says, I think I'm gonna go get that cub. Then mama bear stands behind the cub. Mm -hmm. You're like, well, maybe not. <laughs> 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 because, you know, for, you know, Israel's looking directly at the Egyptians, but the Egyptians, they're kind of looking over the heads of the, the yeah. sons of Israel, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, there's within this in verse 20, it says, so you know, it, that pillar of cloud came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. You see, there's a, this is the God who divides. 
You know, this is, some, this is the God who makes a distinction. You know, these are the things that we see in creation and in the plagues and in this moment. And he says, there is a cloud along with darkness, yet it gave light at night. So this singular cloud is darkness to some and light to others. There's a distinction between Egypt and darkness and Israel in the light, which displays this idea that I'm often trying to drive home of this sort of double nature of God's glory being salvation through judgment. You both, you can't separate the two. Uh, salvation isn't just an escape from the enemy, but it's a total destruction of the enemy and a total deliverance of a people. And here you see that very graphically displayed with the cloud being darkness to some and light to others. When Moses stretches out his hand, you see God uses a mediator for his people, but the, the mediator in this case doesn't get the, the, the credit. And verses 21 and 22, you see well, Moses stretched out his hand, but Yahweh swept the sea back. You know, it wasn't Moses or a magical staff that did it. It was the... Yahweh did it, but what Moses lifted up was the staff, which was the reminder of God's strength. It was the reminder of God's hand and what he had done, which is going to be important to, you know, remember in, in the future when that, you know, a reminder of that staff is passed on to future generations. What happens here is just total chaos on the side of the Egyptians, and they're not as intelligent as they appear in Charles Heston movies. It wasn't like, oh, they, they had kind of got out on the dry land, and they're like, well, let's go back. They're like, no, let's go straight into the water. <laughs> this is how confused they were. Uh, uh, this You're seeing the insanity of their sin, and that they went into the midst of the sea. It's like, well, what do you do? It's like, you know, we, there's all this water here. We want to pursue our enemies. Let's swim into the water. <laughs> says, you know, after this confusion ensues, he says, the, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh and I'm glorified through Pharaoh, his chariots, his horsemen, all going them into the waters of judgment where they had tried to place the sons of Israel. And they say, let us flee from Israel for Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. So the Lord decided to teach them something and they learned it. If he's gonna teach you something, you're gonna learn it. And I see that filled here. And there's a play on words that's happening in the Hebrew text, that word, Glory, I've told you, is the word kavod. Well, that's uh, translated as uh, difficulty in verse 25. It says, he, he caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with kavod, with difficulty. 
with heaviness. Sounds like there was a time where Pharaoh wanted the kavod glory for himself, and Yahweh says, that belongs to me. But when, when my glory comes, your life looks like difficulty. <laughs> so if you want to learn to, to read Hebrew so you can see that stuff, then you can. <laughs> I'll give you some tips on that if you decide to pursue it. So we see God, God is our guide. He, he causes our enemies confusion, and he causes them to flee. I again, just even thinking back over the past two years, I mean, have we not seen confusion and enemies fleeing in a lot of different ways? But we want to remember that, you know, we still have the same God who still does that. He still confuses our enemies and causes them to flee. What we see in this and Yahweh's salvation that it was him and him alone who overthrew the Egyptians. Said, well, what did the sons of Israel do? Well, they just stood there. I mean, first they complained about it. They blasphemed God. They didn't trust him. And by grace, they were saved. And when this defeat happened, in verse 28, it says of the Egyptians, not even one of them remained. There wasn't just some extra guy that was able to escape and run back to the desolate land of a totally defeated Egypt. Not one of them remained. This was a thorough defeat. You remember in Exodus 12, 12, God said, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. He said that he was going to do that and he did that. The gods of Egypt are dead. The firstborn of Egypt are dead. Now Pharaoh's entire army is dead. And Israel arrived on dry land in distinction with the Egyptians being protected on all sides, on their right, on their left, with Yahweh on their flank and their enemies dead in front of them. Yahweh saved Israel not because they deserved it, but because he promised to do it and he wanted to reveal his name. He wanted to reveal his nature, his character, who he is through these things. You might remember Israel and their response to this whole plan. They said, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What we see here is that Yahweh did indeed intend to bring them to a grave site, but it wasn't their grave site. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What Israel saw was the serpent sea dragon of Egypt crushed upon the shore under the great hand of Yahweh. And it says of these people that they feared Yahweh, they believed in Yahweh, and in his servant Moses. Now we know as this goes on that this is going to be a really divided group and who actually does fear and believe 
But in this, we see God's fulfilling his great promise to save a people for his glory. And we don't want to miss the order of how his salvation works. Because what we're seeing is a pattern of that salvation here. God didn't wait for them to trust him before he saved him or saved them. The, the first thing that happens is they see their salvation and then the fear and belief follows. Now, this is the pattern of salvation still today. We're delivered when we can't save ourselves. And then after that, we respond in faith. We respond in trusting God and worshiping Him. Charles, when you, when you look at this, this part of the narrative in its totality, when, when you get to that last uh, verse, uh, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. I mean, you almost have to look at that with a jaundiced eye. You almost want to put an asterisk there, right? Because you know that this belief and this trust in the Lord is conditioned upon such a flimsy confidence <laughs> that will be borne out later on as we see yeah. people repeat this cycle of doubting Moses, of, you know, having this sin of unbelief in God. Um, is that... Fair yeah. to say. <laughs> what you're, because you're going to see, there's going to be people who sing the, the song of Moses. You know, it wasn't only Moses believed and worshipped, but there's going to be other people who join them. But what you're going to see is there's going to be a distinction of fears and a distinction of beliefs. Mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be a, a true fear in the Lord versus those who just have a fear of other things. You're going to see... Uh, Enduring belief and vain belief. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm getting. Right? That's something I'm going to be preaching on. I'm going out to Baptist Church in Alta. They need a, a pulpit supply this morning. And one of the things I'm going to be talking about is that sort of distinction that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's saying, talking about standing in the gospel. And he says, well, if indeed you hold fast. And he says, unless you believed in vain. So he does that sort of comparison of a enduring belief and a vain belief. He's like, well, what makes the difference? He's like, well, it's the grace of God. He's like, you know, why am I enduring today? He says, because God's grace was not in vain in my life. Yeah, that's why I work hard for his kingdom, because he is actually at work in me and through me. Uh, when it comes to this concept that we were talking about in the, you know, how salvation works, when it comes to Christ and Him crucified, yeah, we want to remember that it's the first thing that happens chronologically is that our eyes are open to see Christ and Him crucified, then we believe. It's not we believe first and then we can see Him. And that's, that's crucial. But when we look at this passage, you know, to, to summarize the things that are learned in it, there's two questions that I think are always helpful in understanding the book of Exodus. And one of them you know, was, what does this passage teach Israel about God? And what does this passage teach Israel about salvation? 
Because what it, taught, what it teaches them is what it teaches us as well. But what it would teach them is that you know, God, God is their guide. Uh, because he didn't guide them that way and he turned them this other way. And he said he would surely take care of Joseph and them and show that he was taking care of them by reminding them that he was taking care of Joseph by the fact that they were carrying his dead bones that were now walking into the land with them. God is the God who resurrects the dead and saves them. He guides them by caring for them and fighting for them. And part of how he carries out his guidance is by fighting for them. And in fighting for them, he's also discipling the nations by teaching them uh, that he is the God who guides, the God who fights for his people and who does care about them so that they will know that he is Yahweh through the judgment of their enemies. God's shepherding discipleship of his people is judgment evangelism to outsiders. We see this concept in Philippians 1. You know, like <laughs> when I taught through Genesis, like every sermon I heard, I was like, this is about Genesis. You know, everything Dave was preaching, I was like, that's in Genesis. <laughs> well, now I'm, everything he's preaching, I'm like, that's in Exodus. <laughs> and I think you're going to hear this sort of concept of salvation through judgment in Philippians 1. I thought about this when Dave preached on these verses in Philippians 1, 27 to 28. It says, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Doesn't that sound like? Absolutely. Yeah, like, wow, I already read this. It's the, it's the Exodus God. <laughs> so, you know, why, why does God, you know, bring up, you know, these bones of Joseph? Why does he bring up these dead bones of Israel? You know, why did he raise the dead body of Christ? Well, this is also in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. It's so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I mean, you, you think about that. It's, it's not just everything in heaven that's saying that he's Lord, but it's everything that's on earth, believer and unbeliever alike, and everything under the earth. Uh, this is uh, elect and fallen angels Believing and unbelieving people all confessing that Jesus is Lord. And you see something like that here in Exodus because we want to remember, we don't want to just see the human actors themselves in the confession that Jesus is Lord, but to recognize this is all Genesis 3.15 working out. Uh, there's spiritual forces behind all of these people. There's a power behind Pharaoh but there's also a power behind Moses. There's also a power behind the Egyptians. There's a power behind the sons of Israel. There's two family heads who are leading their families. 
but all of them combined, head of the family and the family members, will confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, what does this passage teach Israel and us about salvation? Well, it teaches us that there's no reason to fear lesser fears. Uh, it's to remind us to, to stand firm and to see his salvation work out. You know, the command isn't march and look around. <laughs> and to remember that he will accomplish it. He promised to do it. He's been faithful in the past to look back at something like the Exodus and know that there, there is a still greater Exodus to come. And if he did that one, why won't he do the other? I am meaning to connect the book of Exodus to Revelation in saying that. I think about how Israel responded to, responded to this and what they did was they stood in battle array, but they didn't fight, you know, uh, they weren't the offensive strategy. Uh, they weren't the owners of the defense either. Uh, they, they weren't their own shield. They just watched God be their shield, just as he was Abraham's shield. Uh, he's the warrior shepherd king who protects his people. And all we have to do is stand in him who is everything that we need, which is a point that's made in Ephesians 6 when it's talking about, you know, put on the whole armor of God. It's like, well, whose armor is that? <laughs> it's not your armor. It's, it's his armor. It's what he does for you. It's him being a shield for you. It's him being a breastplate for you. Him being a helmet for you. Him being a belt for you. Uh, it's Jesus's armor that he wore when in his righteousness, he did what we couldn't do. It's just a synonym for saying, you know, put on Christ, be in him, uh, live in him. And we also learn of salvation that his deliverance equals total destruction of enemies. When Yahweh saved, Israel saw that the Egyptians were dead, which connects at a later point in Scripture and Revelation 20, where water and fire come together again to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant words, I will curse those who curse you. And what happens is the old slave master is baited to come out in battle because you have Satan that says, Satan must be released for a little while. Like, I don't know if that's a good idea. You know, why <laughs> must he be? Can't we do this another way? It's like, well, why must he? Well, because God said, I will curse those who curse you. And if I don't do this, then I'll be unfaithful to what I said. I must do this. I must curse those who cursed you. So he brings out the old slave master. He brings out the devil who deceived people. And he was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then he brings up, he raises up all of their enemies at the great white throne judgment. And John says, he saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. So you see, it's like, oh man, we've read this before, right? 
He says, and death, remember, that's the weapon. Slave, master, the antichrist, and his weapon is death. So he's, he's like, well, he's thrown away the old slave master. Well, what about the weapon? He's like, well, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a reminder that in our salvation, God will bring retribution to our enemies, be it Satan, demons, or humans who were enemies. Uh, He will bring about uh, breaking the master and the weapon. God is the God who fights for his people. And he'll fight for you even if it means that he has to raise your enemies and you from the dead to prove it. God fights for his people despite how well-trained they are, despite how equipped they are, despite how well-organized they may or may not be, despite how outclassed they might look. He is the one who will eliminate their foes and show that he is the God who dispels fear, that he is the God who delivers from distress. He is the God who expects us to trust in him and gives us no reason to not trust in him. He's the one who removes us from danger, and he is a warrior, and all we need to do is just stand and watch. It's God alone who is glorified by his judgment through salvation And I would love to read to you 1 Corinthians 1 and Romans 9 through 11, but we do not have time this time. But if you think of it, to read those things, to think about your calling in 1 Corinthians 1 in relation to what we talked about, but also to read, you know, how do you respond to what happened with Pharaoh, which is what Romans 9 through 11 is about, which I'll just summarize quickly. But the whole purpose of that was that his name might be proclaimed throughout the world. So we respond the same way that Paul did in Romans 10 when he says, you know, brothers, my my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You know, we should have a, a heart for the lost and the destruction that will come to them if they don't repent, which is a reminder that You you must confess and believe on him to be saved, which is what Paul goes on to say, that if you do confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And to just praise him for his merciful salvation, to look back at what he did in the the Exodus, which this is what's going to transpire in Exodus 15. He's going to be praised for what he did, and that's how Paul responds in Romans 11 when he's looking back at Israel and what has transpired with them up to that point. And as he thinks on all of these things that God's been doing throughout history, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.